Good morning. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be found acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we interrupt our normally scheduled broadcast of Tool Time. If you've been here the last few weeks, you know we've been enjoying a series of Tool Time episodes and messages. But today we celebrate United Methodist Women, so I wanted to deviate from the ever-so-manly grunting on Tool Time and instead borrow from a different TV show. So today we get That Girl. Some of you may be too young to remember, but that was a sitcom from the late 60s. It starred Marlo Thomas as a single woman trying to make it on her own in New York City. Anybody remember it? No worries if you don't, because the premise of the show really has nothing to do with today's sermon. I simply liked the title, That Girl. No name, just That Girl. I think it would fit well within scripture where so many women are unnamed. Yet those unnamed women teach us so much about faith and love, forgiveness, patience, persistence, perseverance, joy, mercy. So many things that we need to live this life of faith. So while Jeff is away on an Emmaus walk, and I have um, from good authority that he is having a marvelous weekend, while he is away and we are celebrating women, we take a break from tool time and look at that girl an unnamed woman with a powerful teaching. That girl's story is found in Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, before you have pictures in your mind of this woman crawling under the table, bumping into knees to get at Jesus' feet, which to me sounds like a scene from I Love Lucy, let me set the stage. In Jesus' time, meals like this were not private and homes were not closed off from the public as they are now. And because such an event would have been much more public than a dinner in a private home today, the presence of uninvited persons would not have been unusual. People could come and watch, an open house, if you will. So Jesus and the woman both come to the Pharisee's house. Jesus invited the woman as one of the uninvited townspeople who would have crowded around the walls to see the Pharisee, this religious leader, and his guests. The dinner table was different, too. The invited guests at a meal like this would probably have been reclining on pillows or low benches, kind of leaning on their left arms, eating with their right hands, and their feet were stretched out behind them, away from the mat or the low table where the food was. So the sinful woman, that girl, could have easily approached Jesus' feet, which were stretched out behind him away from the table. Continuing in Luke, when the Pharisee who had invited him, Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, 
If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Steve and I like to joke about leave the door unlocked and you never know who will walk in. Our home has always had an open door policy for our kids and their friends. And still to this day, even with our kids grown or basically grown, their friends know that they are welcome to come into our home whenever they're in town. Normally this works really well and we're happy to see these uninvited guests. But every now and then, someone stops by that surprises us. Leave the door open. So it was with Simon in his day. Simon, the Pharisee and the host of the party. The woman, that girl, who was a sinner, who drops in uninvited. Could two people be more different? He is looked up to. She is looked down on. He's a church leader. She's a streetwalker. He makes a living promoting standards. She's made a living breaking them. He's hosting a party. She's crashing it. Ask anyone at the party or in the town to point out the pious of the two, and they'd pick Simon. After all, he's a student of theology, a man of the cloth. Let's be honest. Ask yourself who's more pious or more religious, a pastor or a prostitute. Most of us here would pick the pastor, Simon. Anyone would pick him. Anyone, that is, except Jesus. Simon says, if Jesus knew who was touching him, but Jesus did know who was touching him. Jesus knew both of them, the Pharisee and that girl. So we pick Simon as the pious one. But in Jesus' way of turning the world upside down, Jesus picks the woman. And there's the challenge of the story. That girl is only referred to as sinner, a sinful woman. It's assumed she was a prostitute. She was widely known and properly shunned by respectable people. Exactly how, when, and where she encountered Jesus, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But somewhere, she had come under the powerful and life-changing influence of our Lord. What he promises, that the weight of her sins, of our sins, would be lifted, had actually happened. She felt free of them. She had a new life to live. She was a new person. No wonder she had the courage to crash the dinner party and seek Jesus out. Her gratitude could not be contained. The power of God's love that she felt had to come out. And then there's Simon, the one who many of us could relate to. His attitude toward that girl was approved by his friends. His attitude toward that girl was approved by many today. Simon's friends and fellow Pharisees held to the ancient notion that evil is contagious and that a wise man or woman will stay away from sinners. Actually, that's not so ancient a notion, is it? The world today teaches pretty much the same thing. As a parent, I can't tell you how many times I've told my kids, stay away from bad people. So Simon makes sense to us. Certainly a man of God, a holy man who valued his, ho his holiness, would not risk himself by needless exposure to sin and sinners. Certainly today, if we want to walk the straight and narrow, we won't expose ourselves to sin and sinners. But things are never so straightforward with Jesus.
In verse 44, we read, Then he, Jesus, turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? The question is simple, but so revealing. Do you see this woman? No, Simon doesn't see this woman. He looks and he sees someone with a label, someone who has been pigeonholed as a sinner. That's all he sees. Elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus complains about those who see but do not really see. I have to admit, in a worldly sense, it's almost easy to envy people like Simon, people who don't see beneath the surface, people who manage to live in a neat, tidy little world, ignorant or ignoring the people and the activities in this world that are just plain ugly or unpleasant. It seems nice to enjoy peace and somehow live in a troubled world with an untroubled mind. Hear this story. When Allied troops entered the South German town of Dachau toward the end of World War II, they could smell the stench of decaying human flesh and burning flesh miles before they arrived in town. What they found in the camp on the edge of town was horrifying. Thousands of people had been put to death in a horrible slaughter chamber of Dachau. Years ago, when I lived in Germany, I visited Dachau. And even though the war had ended almost 40 years earlier, the evil still hung in the air and was suffocating. Myself, along with many other tourists, wandered the grounds in silence because there simply were no words that were adequate. The overwhelming question I kept thinking was, How? How could this happen? And yet, when many of the citizens of the town were asked about the camp, they professed ignorance. We didn't know those things were going on out there, they said. Even though some of them worked at the camp, forcing inmates into the death chambers. Even though trains were moving through town day and night on the way to the death camp, they still professed ignorance. No, I didn't see any boxcars full of people, they said. No, I had no personal knowledge of anything amiss at the camp. It's so easy for us as human beings to see what we want to see, and it's natural to blind ourselves to what is too frightening or too painful to see. But when we close our eyes to the world around us, when we only see what is comfortable and easy, we miss out on so much of God's unfolding truth. We miss out on seeing God's awesomeness at work in this hurting world. And we miss out on seeing how God can use us in this world. Do you see this woman? No, Simon did not really see the woman. Looking at that girl, the woman of the streets, overflowing with joy and gratitude, filled with freedom and new life, Jesus cried, this is of God. Simon looked at the same woman, but did not see what Jesus saw. Jesus saw and Simon missed the living power of God in her joy and peace. Simon wrote the woman off as lost. Jesus saw in her a redeemed person. How is it that Simon and Jesus saw different people when they both looked at the same woman? Reading on in verses 44 to 47, Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, 
but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, and she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Simon invites Jesus to his house. We don't know why. Simon and Jesus moved in radically different spiritual and moral worlds. Jesus, in one in which the love of God was a great new power in the molding of life and relationships. Simon, in a fixed and finished world, in which God had been reduced to writing, and all that was needed was to study the writing and obey its leading. Sure, Simon believed in God, the God of Israel, the Lord of the covenant, the Lord of history. But Jesus believed in the living God, the God of transformation, the God of forgiveness, the God of new life. Nevertheless, Jesus ends up as a guest at Simon's house. And while we don't know the reason for the invitation, we do know that Simon didn't offer any of the customary courtesies of the day. No kiss of greeting, no washing of feet, no oil for his head. Or in today's world, no one opened the door for him, took his coat, or shook his hand. We teach our children better manners than that. Simon does nothing to make Jesus feel welcome. The woman, that girl, does everything that Simon didn't. She puts her cheek to his feet, still dusty from the path. She has no water, but she has tears. She has no towel, but she has her hair. She uses both to bathe the feet of Christ. She opens a vial of perfume, perhaps her only possession of worth, and massages it into his skin. Can you imagine such radical love? You'd think Simon, of all people, would show such love, but he's harsh and distant. You'd think the woman would be distant, but she can't resist Jesus. Simon's love is calculated and stingy. Her love is extravagant and risky. So what's up with these two? Why do Simon and that girl respond so differently to Jesus? What does that girl have that Simon doesn't? Training? Education? Money? No, for Simon exceeds the woman in all three categories. But there is one category in which that girl exceeds Simon. Think about it. What one discovery has she made that Simon hasn't? What one treasure does she cherish that Simon doesn't? Simple. God's love. We don't know when she received it. We aren't told how she heard of it. But she heard of it, received it, and wallowed in it. The truth is, Simon could have that same love. But the truth also is that sadly, Simon has no idea he needs that love. The sad truth is that there are people today in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, who, like Simon, don't know they need that same love. Do you know people like Simon? I do. Perhaps you were like Simon. I have to admit there's times when I am one of those Simon people. People who would rather analyze grace than receive it. People who would rather debate mercy than request it. People who live with pride rather than forgiveness. People who limit love rather than risk being vulnerable. 
So while that girl has ample love to give, Simon has no love to offer. Simon lives neatly in a self-created box, and that girl lives freely through a God-created love. And that same love is available to you and I. Look again at verse 47. A person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Receive only a little, and we only have a little to give. We can't give what we've never received. God wants us to receive grace, to receive grace, request mercy, live forgiven, and accept unconditional love. And I don't mean the grace or mercy or love that people offer. As hard as we try, we always place conditions on our love. I mean the love that the woman received from God, the love that only God can give. That girl discovered that it can only come from God. And scripture teaches us why and how to live out that love. We love because he first loved us. Long to be more loving? Begin by accepting your place as a dearly loved child. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us. Want to learn to forgive? Then consider how you've been forgiven. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Finding it hard to put others first? Think of the way Christ put you first. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Need more patience? Remember, he is patient with you. Is generosity a challenge? Then consider how generous God has been with you. While you were all sinner, still sinners, Christ died for you. Having trouble putting up with ungrateful relatives or cranky neighbors or annoying co-workers? God puts up with us when we act the same. He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. We know what God wants us to do. This is God's commands that we love each other, but it's hard. How can we be kind to those who have lied to us, to those who are unkind to us? How can we be patient with people who have the warmth of a rock and the tenderness of a thorn bush? How can we forgive those who have treated us badly? How can we love as God loves? That girl, the girl with no name, The girl only known as the sinful woman in this story tells us how. By living loved. Receive first, love second. Start by receiving the extravagant, unconditional love of God, and you can't help but respond in love. Probably the most famous love chapter in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 13. It's read at almost every Christian wedding as the standard of what love is. Will you read this together out loud with me? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, 
always perseveres. Love never fails. Several years ago, someone challenged me to substitute my name for the word love. Try that for a moment with your own name. I didn't get very far with that exercise before I realized how impossible that was, that I was speaking a lie. I'm not always patient, not always kind. I'm all too often rude and self-seeking and easily angered and need I go on. If Steve were here, he'd be nodding in agreement and asking for an amen. (laughs) Trying to put my name in those verses was setting a standard I could not meet. While it is a goal I strive for, I will fail. You will fail. Everyone will fail. Everyone, that is, except Jesus. So, as we move forward to screen, now let's insert Christ's name in the place of the word love and see how that feels. Let's read together again. Christ is patient. Christ is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He is not rude. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Christ does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Christ never fails. Does that not describe the measureless love of God? Rather than let this scripture remind us of a love that we cannot produce, let it remind us of a love that we cannot resist, God's love. Simon needed this love and didn't know it. That girl received this love and was never the same. You and I need this love to live in love. In this world, there are those who should have loved you but didn't. Those who could have loved you but didn't. Perhaps you were left at the hospital, left at the altar, left with an empty bed, left with a broken heart, left with the question, does anybody love me? The answer is yes. The answer is yes, God loves you personally, powerfully, passionately. Others have promised and failed, but God has promised and succeeds. He loves you with unfailing love in spite of the sins in your life. And his love, if you let it, can fill you and leave you with a love worth giving. Take a lesson from that girl, the woman who was a sinner, because aren't we? Receive the extravagant, unconditional love of God and go and live life out of that love. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord of love, we come before you in need of love, not the love that the world offers because that so often depends on how we act, how we look, what we say. But we come in need of the love that only you can offer. We read that you love us, we sing Jesus loves me, and we tell others God loves them. Please help us now to truly receive that love, to receive it not just in our heads but in our hearts. For only then can we live a life that overflows with love. This world, our neighbors, our families, and our friends need your love. Help us to fully trust what your word says and be the vessels in which your love flows and overflows. 
I pray that we feel your love so deeply that it can't be contained in nice, neat, respectable behaviors. But like the outpouring of the sinful woman in Simon's house, we receive a love that is so extravagant and amazing that we can't contain it. Please help us receive your love and then live that love in our homes, our schools, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our world. I boldly ask this in the loving, precious name of Jesus. Amen.